That's a tough act to follow, but I'll try to do what I can in this morning. But, you know, one of the thoughts that struck me recently was that sometimes doubt is a good thing. When you're standing on the edge of the lake and you're wondering whether or not the ice is thick enough to hold your weight, doubt can be a good thing, Right? You know, uh, there are other ways along those same kinds of lines of things that, that can be wise for you. When you're headed out on vacation and you're a mile down the road and you wonder if you remembered to turn off the stove, doubt can be a good thing. But you know, when we come to our primary relationships, like our relationship with God, when our relationship with our spouses or with our parents or with our children or siblings... I don't think doubt in those primary relationships is a good thing. When you're in a relationship with somebody and you doubt whether you can really trust them, it's not a good thing, right? When when you're in a relationship with somebody who's that important to you and you doubt whether or not they're actually going to do what they say they're going to do, that's not good for the relationship. If they tell you they're going to change, but you doubt whether they're ever going to change... It gets very difficult in the relationship. You know, I, occasionally I land up doing some marriage counseling with some folks. And one of the biggest struggles you have in that journey is that confidence or overcoming that doubt that things are ever going to be different than they are at the moment. And I think that's really strategic for us as well when we think about our relationship with God. You know, I had somebody this week tell me that, I said, you know what, I'd, I'd love to come in and chat with you because I think I'm losing my faith. I, and really on the flip side of what they say is that some doubt's starting to creep in. And I'm wondering whether or not I can really trust God. Or I'm really starting to doubt whether, can God really love me, you know? Can, can God really care about me? Or does God really care about me? And we have those kinds of struggles that we go through. And when doubt enters into our primary relationship with God, it gets really hard for us to walk with God. You know, I mean, you, you, you can see it. I mean, we're going to spend a little bit of time. Maybe you just grab your Bibles for just a second and turn to Genesis chapter 3. I, I just want to give you a couple of, just one illustration of what doubt does in our relationship with God. So Genesis is right at the book of, beginning of, the, of your book. So if you're grabbing your own Bible, you can turn just at the early, the first book you're going to come to is Genesis. If you're using one of our pew Bibles, our chair Bibles, it's right underneath the seat. Beneath you, you can grab that as on page two, right? So it's right up front and really close, right? And um, one of the, and and, you know, you'll see the, the big numbers, three, and then you'll see the little numbers down. And, but just, just look at this dynamic, how, what doubt does to the relationship between Adam and Eve and God. You know, God has created Adam and Eve. We're going to look at that in just a minute. He's placed them in a garden so he can live in a relationship with them. And he said, you know what? Anything in here is yours. You can eat. But one thing, just stay away from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Just stay away from it. I don't want you to eat from it. And, and because when that happens, you're going to die. And then along comes this serpent, the evil one, as we know him. And look what he says in verse 4. No, you, know, you, 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 you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. 
and doubt crept in. Can I really trust God? Is God telling me what's best for me? And then she starts to look and she sees that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at. I mean, it's just like, you know, you're on a diet and the bowl of ice cream is there and the, and the strawberries on there and the nuts and, you know, all that kind of good stuff. And it's like, this can't be bad for me, right? You know, because I look and, 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 and with doubt, she doubts God and the relationship is damaged. I want to speak to you today in a way that is designed to try to limit or remove doubt from our spiritual journey. You know, I don't believe God wants us to doubt. Just a few minutes, we're going to observe the Lord's Supper. It's been called the Eucharist in some churches and others it's called communion. We refer to it as the Lord's Supper. But God gave us a tradition to observe on a regular basis. And for this purpose, I don't want you to doubt. I don't want you to doubt that I love you, and that I want to be in a relationship with you, and I've made it possible for you to be in a relationship with me. And, and, and so God gives it to us over and over and over again. And, and I want to actually build off of what your kids learned this week in VBS. I can't believe, bring myself to say Vacation Bible Spectacular, because I'm old school, so it keeps coming out Vacation Bible School. And I know that's a dirty word in the summer now for kids, so we're calling it Vacation Bible Spectacular. But I want to go over what they learned this week, because it speaks to this for us. And so I've titled my sermon today, Galactic Cleanings, because their theme this year, this year was Galactic Surveyors. That's why we have a missile from North Korea on our, on our platform. And... Um, Well, it's better than them having it. So, uh, (laughs) there we go. Uh, Bad pastor, stop that. All right. And, you know, the. So, and out of that, I I want us to look at these four, and, and I want our galactic gleanings to kill the doubt that's in our lives. And, and, and I, I think there's some really powerful for words for us to consider today. God, God, God wants to drive out our doubts. He's given us his word, and he's given us the Lord's Supper. He wants us to remember that he wants to be in relationship with us, and he's made that possible. And he wants to drive out those doubts. So here, here's a couple truths that I want you to get today. And here's, we're going to start with the first one that the kids learned this week. And they learned that the creator of the universe. The one who put the stars in the sky wants to have a relationship with them. Now, I tell you what, if you can get that into your five-year-old, and that's how they start their life off, with figuring out, do I really matter? Do I have any value? If If you can get it ingrained to them from the word of God that that they matter to God, Because God, who created the entire world, wants to have a relationship with them. And here's the truth I want to put to you today. We we need to drive out the doubt that God cares about us, that God's interested in us, that God wants to have a relationship with us. God has declared from the very beginning, even from before creation, that he wants to have a relationship with you and I. Turn back just one chapter to Genesis chapter 1. And I want to look at verses 
just 26 through, 20, through 31, just down through the end of the chapter. So this is a part of the creation story. The creation story is told to us in two different ways in the book of Genesis. One in chapter 1, and then it's kind of recounted in chapter 2 for us. And, and you know, Because some of us are slow learners, and we needed to have it repeated to us. So we get the message that we will not doubt that God wants to have a relationship with us. And here's the reality. Listen to look at verse 20. Then God said, so the unique singular being in the universe says, let's make man, let's make humanity in our image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the animals and all the earth and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. God also said, look, I've given you every seed-bearing plant on the surface of the entire earth and every tree whose fruit contains seed. This food will be for you. I'm providing for you, for all the wildlife for the earth, for every bird of the sky and for every creature that crawls on the earth, everything having the breath of life in it. I have given you every green plant for food, and so it was so. And God said all that he had made, and it was very good. And evening came, and then morning, the sixth day. You know, when you look at this passage, there's several things that stand out to me where God communicates that he wants to have a relationship with us. I see several reasons why you and I should have absolutely no doubt that the master of the universe wants to be in a relationship with you, that he cares about you, that he cares about me, that he cares about us. And here's, here's the first thing. One is that we are made in the image of God. And here's, here's how I understand that. I mean, he doesn't say that about any other aspect of creation, but he says it about how you and I are made. And, and we could wrestle with the, what does that really mean theologically and et cetera. But at the core of it, I believe it means that God has designed us in such a way that we are able to have a relationship with him because that's what he wants from us. He's designed us to be relational beings. And primarily that means that we are relational beings that connect with him. And the reason why God programmed it into us, he scripted it into us. It was part of the engineering specs of how he put us together was that he wanted to be in a relationship with us. And so he made us in his image. And then he called us into partnership with what he does. He said, it's my creation, but I'm giving you control over it. Master the, master the fish of the sea. Be masters over the birds of the air. Be masters over the, 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 the food that, that grows, the plants. God, God, God invited us to participate, to be partners with him, with the way that he runs the world, because we matter to him. And God cares about us. And look at verse 28, probably a verse that we often overlook and say, God blessed them. God, God's eager to bless us. God, God wants to bless us. You know, and then you go over to the Gospel of John, and I'm not going to have you turn there, but, you know, John was one of the early apostles, one of the early disciples that Jesus called. And he wrote the very last of the four Gospels. Most of the Gospels were written in, the, in the, the 60s, about 30 years, 35 years, 40 years after Jesus died. But the Gospel of John was written much later, probably closer to, to 80, 90, some 60 years after Jesus um, was, uh, died. And, 
And he starts out, says, in the beginning was the word. And that's a reference to Jesus. And the word was with God and the word was God. And then he goes on and he lays out all the ways that Jesus was involved in creation. And then he says, you know what? And the word became flesh, became one of us. And he showed up and he lived in our neighborhood. He dwelt among us. And we were able, and the reason he did that is so that we can be in relationship with him. I got to tell you, if, if, if in your spiritual journey, you're questioning whether you can have a relationship with God, you need to let the word of God just drive that stuff out. Because God has declared from before creation began that he wants to have a relationship with you and you can have a relationship with him. And that's what your kids were learning this week. And that's a lesson that we need to learn. It's a fundamental, it's a bedrock truth of our relationship with God. When you, when you get to a place where you say, I don't know if God really likes me, if he wants to be connected with me, I don't feel really worthy, and all these kinds of things. I got to tell you, your, your spiritual life is doomed. And we need to build it on the fact that God has irrevocably communicated to us, I want to have a relationship with you. It's the way I made you. It's what my charge is for you. And I've demonstrated it in every single thing that I've done. I want to have a relationship with you. And you know what? And, and I think this is something that the world really needs to know. You know, that, that I, I think, you know, we, we had all this, this stuff that happened this weekend in Virginia, right? And, and I don't know about you, but it just, it just makes my stomach churn. Because at the end of the day, Everybody matters to God, whether they're young and old, male or female, whether they're black, white, whether they're some other color, whether they're Asian, American, African, European, Latino, whatever. Everybody matters to God because every single one of us is made in the image of God, and every single one of them matters to God. The fundamental truth that this communicates to any of us is that people matter. And guess what? We're people. <laughs> All of us are people. And we ought to treat everybody with respect and dignity and with grace because people matter to God. You know, as, as, as I was thinking about this this week and, you know, it brought back a, a conviction that I've had. You know, um, some of you know the story. Back in, in, in 2001, there was a, a small little church here in Sterling that had never run more than about 25 or, or 30 people most of the time, they had run less than 10, and, there was a, 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 and they were committed to the Word of God, but they had just never really had a great fruit. And, and, and the last little group that was there decided it was time for something different to happen in this aspect, this Jerusalem, if you will, this, this home area. And they approached me because I was serving with the network of, of, that served this particular church, and Christina and I had been living in town, and they approached us, and they said, we'd, we'd like to stop doing church, and we want you to start a church in our place. And, 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 and they were, it took about six months for us to get to a place where we said yes to this. But I, I can tell you that, you know, I mean, I had a lot of convictions, as, uh, you know, about the ways that we needed to start, you know, and, and things about the Word of God and, and, and you know, and, and, and the nature of church, church polity, all those kinds of things. I had a lot of foundational things. But the thing that, that God really impressed on my heart, he said, you know what, I want you to do this, and I want the driving force of the way you do ministry inside the church and outside the church is that people matter. Fundamentally, at the bottom of the line, people matter. And, and everything you do inside the church and outside the church needs to be driven by the fact that people matter. They matter to God. 
They've been made, made in God's image. God has a unique plan for them in his creation. He wants to have a relationship. He's come into this world in the person of his son to have a relationship. People matter to God. And everything that we do needs to be driven by the fact that people matter. The way we're organized inside, you know, between our deacons and life groups and others. It, it, the, the whole reason we're organized that way is not to have programs and all structures. It is to be able to consistently on a daily basis express people matter. The reason why we've got greeters out in the parking lot and people standing in the, in the, in the lobby is so that when, when visitors show up, they, we can communicate the conviction that we have as a church that people matter. And, and I got to tell you, I think we need to do what it takes for us to reach people because people matter. You know, um, I got to tell you, if that meant that because most of the people around us don't have a relationship with God and they don't know that they should set aside 9 o'clock on Sunday morning to go to church, that meant that we need to start doing services on Thursday night to reach people who don't know Christ. I'm in. Because people matter. If that means we need to tear out the back wall and put in a French Renaissance pipe organ and I could stand over here in a corner pulpit with a soundboard above me and a... And a, and a, and a um, in a, in a robe and preach from a manuscript using the King James Version, if that's what God demonstrates to us that it takes to reach people, sign me up. If it means that we need to, you know, our, our culture is changing, but the Word of God never changes. And, and I, don't, I don't know how we as a church can embody to anybody that people matter to us if we don't want to change the way that we communicate that unchanging message to a changing culture. I don't know how we can do that. I don't, I don't, you know, I, I don't know how we can do that. You know, and, and I, you know, some people, you know, when, sometimes when you're a pastor, you get feedback. Some people might call it criticism. I look at it as feedback, right? And, and I got to tell you, you know, when people say, oh, why are we changing? You know, every single time we change something, it creates more work for me. I, I don't, we, we, we don't, we don't, the, the elder team, our staff team, and, the, and other, we don't, we don't listen to God and implement changes just because we like change. Because cha- I, I got to tell you, the ideal church for me would be about 100 people that meets at 10 o'clock on Sunday morning in rented facilities. I could spend a lot more time on a golf course and, and, and a lot, and, 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 and more time in, in, in the family boat. I, I mean, I, I just could. I remember one time I was, went down to South Carolina to help out a network of churches, and the church they assigned me to, they were so small that they actually owned the building jointly with the Methodist church. So on the first and third Mondays of the, of the Sunday of the months, the Methodist church used the building, and the Baptists didn't have church. And so the Baptists had church on second and fourth Sundays, and, and then on the fifth Sunday, they would join together when they had those the fourth Sundays. And I'm thinking, that's the church I want to pastor. Man, every other week, that'd be Perfect. You know, but, but I got to tell you, anything we, you know, if we need to be on InstaFace or whatever it is, I mean, it's just, <laughs> and I, I'm, I'm, I'm channeling Bill Belichick now, right? I know it's Instagram and Facebook or whatever. If we need to be doing, we need to be asking ourselves, what does it take for us to express in our changing culture that people matter? And the way we do our deacon ministry, the way we do our life group ministry, the way we do our outreach ministry, I got to tell you, one of the simple ways that you can express it is don't show up for the 9 o'clock service at 8.59 and 59 seconds. Get here at 8.45 and say, I want to meet a couple new people today because people matter. Or don't rush out the door at 
you know, because maybe we ran a little long or whatever, but stay around for a minute and say, you know what, I don't know that person. I'm going to go meet them because they matter to God. You know, just ask yourself, how many new friends do you have among the Christian community, among the spiritual family of Hope Chapel in the last six months to a year? If you don't have any new friends, anybody you could call, say, this is, this is somebody I've gotten deeper with, in all likelihood, we're really not living out the fact that people matter. What we're saying is my schedule matters. And it's, oh, I don't want to meddle too much, all right? Every time we change something, it's more work for me. So remember that in future elder meetings, would you, Jeff, so that we won't change as much stuff. And I can... Here's a second truth. and I want to... There is no doubt that sin messed up everything. God made us in his image, and he, and he longs to have a relationship with us, but there's absolutely no doubt that sin messes up everything. Sin messes up everything. Look at Genesis chapter 3. We're going to go back over to that chapter, right? So a little bit of the story. I want to assume that all of you know it. I mean, God had created this ideal world. He put Adam and Eve in the garden. The whole idea was that the population was going to grow. He commanded them, blessed them to be fruitful, multiply. Then along comes the, the doubt, right? The, the one who questions the character of God. They join in that doubt, and they disobey God. Now, sin here, you know, we can look at it a lot of different ways, but fundamentally, sin is simply just saying, I doubt whether what God's told me is best or not for me. I'm going to listen to the voice of somebody else instead of listening to God in terms of what's best for me. And when we act on that other voice in a way that's contrary to what God has told us to do, that's sin. You don't have to be an axe murderer to be a sinner, right? So look at how this plays out. So they, they, they question whether or not God, so they take the sin and they, they eat the forbidden fruit and there's no truth to the fact that they're apples. So you can just relax back there, Alan, as the orchard owner, right? You know, and uh, it's, it, it, we don't know what the fruit was, you know. And, and so God comes into the garden, and they're alienated from him. And, it, and we just pick up the story in, in verse 14 of chapter 3. This is page 3 of your pew Bibles. So they're hiding from God because they're naked and et cetera. And God said, you know, what have you done? And, and that kind of thing. And, and Adam, you know, he's learning the skill set. already says, you know, it's a woman's fault. She gave me the food. You know, I didn't look at the menu. You know, it's your fault. You gave me her. And now it's that kind of thing. And this is how God responds in verse 14. And the woman said, then the Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than any livestock and more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. And he will strike your head and you will strike his heel. And then he says to the woman, I will intensify your labor pains and you will bear children in anguish. Now, according to my wife, it wasn't painful at all, but no, I'm only teasing. Uh, you know, I will intensify your labor pains. You will bear children in anguish and your desire will be for your husband, yet he will dominate you. And he said to Adam, because you listened to your wife's voice and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from it. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground, and since you were taken from it, from you, for you are dust, 
and you will return to dust. Just a couple of points here. You know, sin messed up everything. I mean, you go over and grab, you know, it's not just everything in terms of creation, but it's everyone. For all have sinned, the scripture tells us, and fall short of the glory of God. None of us are exempt from that, right? But just look at the impact that sin had. And first of all, it messes up our relationship with God. One point in time, they were going for strolls with God in the garden. He shows up now, and they're hiding from God. Messed up their relationship with God. It messed up their relationship with one another, right? The wife's desire is going to be for her husband, and the husband's going to dominate over her. It screwed up their relationship with one another. It messed up human relationships. Anybody ever experienced that? Ever had a conflict in a relationship that was important to you? It messed up our life experiences, right? You know, reference to labor pain. You know, I, I look at this and it says, you know, the ground's going to be cursed. You would think, when you took the collective experience of humanity and you just added up all the time that was spent pulling weeds out of gardens, how much do you think that would be? I mean, that's got to be centuries, Right? I mean, centuries worth of time. I'm trying to get credit. The only grass that grows the fastest in my yard is the weeds. And then you guys get those, like, gra- those grass things. They grow twice as fast as the rest of the, green, the grass, and they're a different color or whatever. And you can't get rid of them for anything except to just send your wife out there to pull them out of the yard. I mean, that's the only way you can get rid of them. And, and, and that kind of stuff, it's, it's, it's amazing. It screws up everything. You know, and it's not always sinister. It's not always horrifically evil. It can be something as simple to say, you know what? I know God wants me to forgive that person, but I I just can't bring myself to do it. That's sin. Or when God says, you know, I really want to use you as an agent of grace in the life of this person, and you say, I'm just too busy. That's sin. It's not always evil, but it messes up everything. You know, and, and, and I used to struggle with the fact that this, this kind of really seems kind of harsh on God's part, right? You know, I, I mean, I think back to an experience that I had when I, when I was a kid, right? 13, 14 years old. My brother's a couple years older. Parents aren't home. One of the cars is in the driveway. The keys are in the kitchen. So we get the cars, you know, and, 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 but, and, and I'm not saying who it was, but, but we, we managed to lay down some really good rubber in the driveway. I mean, just, you know, and, and, it, and the parents come home. My dad is livid, but he didn't kick me out of the will because I did that. You know, and, and it doesn't seem like God is so much more harsh. And, and, and the only statement that I can say is my dad wasn't completely holy, but God is. And I don't fully understand what it means. But part of what it means is that when you and I sin, it messes up everything in terms of our relationship with God. Because he's holy, and we're not anymore. Third truth the kids learned this week. And, and this is another one you need to put down as a no-doubter. Is that sin's not the final word. God's always had a plan to deal with it. Sin, this broken relationship with God, is not the final word. God's always had a plan to deal with it. And that plan was he sent his son 
to be the Savior of the world. It, it, you know, you, you get a hint of it in Genesis chapter 3 where it says, you know, your, your offspring are going to step on the head of the serpent. And there's many that believe that's the first imagery of the fact that God is going to come into humanity and he's going to crush sin. But you get great promises out of prophets like Isaiah said, you know, the virgin will be with child and she'll give birth to a son and they're going to call him Emmanuel. And what does Emmanuel mean? God with us. Relationship. Right? And then you get over and, and all those promises come to fulfillment in, in, in the life of, as God uses Mary and Joseph, again, partners in what God is doing in his activity in the world, like we're supposed to rule over the world. They're partners and God brings forth his son into the world and they name him Jesus because he's going to be the savior. Did you know the name Jesus means God saves? God saves. And, and God made these promises and he fulfills them in Jesus Christ. And, and so when you have people like, you know, and these are maybe obscure stories to some of you, but, you know, after, when Jesus, every Jewish family, if they lived close enough to the temple, would go up to the temple to present their child and to give an offering to God to say, thank you for giving us this kid. Now, if you came back three years later, when the kid's three, they probably would have said, you can have him back. But so they did it very early when the kid was just a few weeks old, right? Before they could cause any trouble. And, and, and so you go up and you up. And, and when they go in, there's a couple of, of people who, who are just devout, devout followers of God. And one of the guy's name is Simeon. And, and he sees Jesus and he says, you know what, God, beam me up because I've seen your salvation. And then you've got Anna. It, then you got Anna, it's the same reaction, right? You get, you get this, this, these puffs. God kept his promise, and he did not let sin be the final word because he's always had a plan to send his son. And his son became one of us and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. So last truth. And your kids learned this all week long. The Greatest, singular, unique being in the universe. The creator wants to have a relationship with them, with us. Sin messes all of that up. But God doesn't let that be the end of the story. And he doesn't want it to be the end of your story. And because of that, you and I can have a relationship with God that's going to last for eternity by faith in Jesus Christ. Let me just point you to a couple of scriptures that really stand out here. You know, turn to the, the book of Colossians. I'm going to give you a page number in just the beginning. This is one of the many letters that a guy by the name of Paul, the Apostle Paul, wrote. And he was writing it to a, a church that was in a city named Colossae. And, and he had been there and taught and that kind of thing, but he wanted, to have, have, he wanted them to have in black and white what it was that God had done. And God inspired him to send him, them a letter that God could speak through. And, and, and I, I, we're not, we don't have time to read a lot of this, but, but Colossians chapter 1, we're going to start on page 1001. And I encourage you, you know, if you don't have a regular reading thing you're doing, the book of Colossians would be great to flow through and, and picking up this whole uh, passage, this whole section in Colossians would be great for you. But let me just start with verse 19. Colossians 1 verse 19. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, which being translated to your and I language, Jesus was God. Right? Jesus was God. 
and through him to reconcile, that means to create a relationship again that had been broken, through him to reconcile everything to himself. All the brokenness of the planet and unite to break everything, to reconcile everything, to restore a relationship by making peace through the blood of his cross, communion. I don't want you ever to doubt. I want you to remember what I did on the cross so you never have a doubt that God cares for you, that sin's not the final word, and that I came so that you can have a relationship with him that lasts forever. God doesn't want us ever to doubt that. By making peace through his blood on the cross, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Said, and once you were alienated and hostile in mind because of your, action, your evil actions, but now he's reconciled you by his physical body. In other words, Jesus became one of us through his death. He died on the cross to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. In other words, when God looks at you and you're in Christ by faith, all God sees is perfection. Perfection. I look in the mirror, I don't see perfection. (laughs) When God looks at me, he sees perfection. Holy, faultless, and blameless. If indeed you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith and are not shifted away from the hope of the gospel that you heard. God has made it possible for you and I to be forgiven for our sin. And to be holy and blameless because God has personally intervened in human history to make sure that sin isn't the final word, but what Christ did on the cross and how it applies to our lives and faith. It's not the final word. You know, it was interesting that just I want you to notice that this isn't based upon anything that you and I do. It's based on what God has done. And that's where a lot of the doubt comes in for us, right, when it comes to this. I don't believe enough. Maybe I'm not really saved. You know, I haven't become good enough. Maybe I'm not really forgiven. This isn't based on you. It's based on what God has done in Christ. You you want another thing? I'm going to flip you back a little bit. Romans, the book of Romans, chapter 3, right? The last passage I'm going to turn you to. So be paid. Romans chapter 3, verse, page 958. 958. We read just a moment again, chapter 3, verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But I want you to back up and look at verses 21 and 22 with me. But now, apart from the law... That means apart from any effort on our part, zip, zero, zilch, nothing. You never get out of bed in terms of, the, in terms of creating righteousness. God's righteousness has been revealed, attested by the law and the prophets. That is God's righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ. It doesn't have anything to do with what we do. It has everything to do with what God has done in Jesus Christ. Don't ever doubt that God can make you right in his eyes through the work of Jesus Christ. Because it hasn't to do with law. It doesn't have anything to do with what you do. It has everything to do with what God has done and revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. 
You know, and we think, I mean, how does that work? Because we don't do substitutionary atonement today, right? And, and, and I don't know if I have a great, compelling illustration, but let me just give you this, because this is not too different than what an experience that I've heard about recently in the network of our church. But imagine you were 19 years old, you were going to college, living in a different city, and you got a parking ticket on your car, and you just never paid it. So now you're 65, and you want to retire, and you want to retire back to that city. And so you go to register your car in that city, and they say, well, you owe us $50,000. Because we've been adding fees and fines on your parking ticket for 40 years, 50, closer to 50 years. And, 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 so, and then somebody comes in and pays your bill for you. Do you still owe it? I don't know if that's compelling to you, but it doesn't mean that the consequences of our sin are all gone. Spiritually, they're all gone. But I got to tell you, if if a guy comes to know Christ on death row for murdering somebody, when he gives his life to Christ and he is forgiven and he's going to go to heaven, doesn't mean that that person's alive again. That person's still dead. That consequence is still there. When, When somebody has abused someone you know, and then that abuser comes to know Christ, it doesn't mean that that abuse never happened. Those consequences are still there, but spiritually, because of what God has done, relationally in terms of our relationship with him, it's all gone. Because it doesn't have anything to do with law. It has to do with what God has done in Jesus Christ. And God says, I don't want you to ever doubt that. So I'm going to give you (laughs) something to remember that on a regular basis in the life of your church. And whether you call it Eucharist, or whether you call it communion, or whether you call it the Lord's Supper, It's my message to you to remember so you don't doubt. Remember so you don't doubt. So as we transition into this, I I, want to extend an invitation to you. You know, in in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19, it says, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he's committed the message of reconciliation to us. And part of the privilege that I have is to be able to proclaim that message on a regular basis to you. And it, and it, and it is one of the greatest privileges that I have to invite you into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And, and it made you say, well, there's got to be more to it than just committing my life to Christ. I don't have to earn it. don't have to know so much stuff. Whatever. You know what? What you need to do is acknowledge the fact that that you are a sinner. That there's at least one moment in your life you did what you preferred to do instead of what God wanted you to do. Check off that box. I confess, I acknowledge that I've committed sin. Then you need to ask for God's forgiveness. God, would you forgive me? Not because I've earned the forgiveness, but because of what you've done in Christ, would you forgive me? And then commit your life to Christ. And I, and I tell people all the time, and the way I pray with them, I say, you know what? I may not even know exactly what it is that I'm committing to, but I'm committing to learning to live my life by faith in Jesus Christ. I'm placing my faith. I'm committing my trust to walk after him. And that's what I invite you to do this morning, is to erase all doubt. The greatest, unique, being in the universe, our creator wants to have a relationship with us. 
Sin has made that really complicated to happen. But God has always had a solution. And today it can be your solution and my solution through our faith in Jesus Christ. And I invite you into that experience before we come to the table. Would you just bow with me for a moment? You know, right now, if, if singing 88 verses of Just As I Am would get any of you to come to know Christ, if you remember the old Billy Graham crusades, we'd do it. But I, I don't think that's what it takes today. But I invite you right where you are to enter into a relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. It's what God's always wanted. It's what he's made possible in Jesus so I invite you right now, just in, in any way that's appropriate for you, just to confess your sin to Jesus. Just, just confess your sin to God. Maybe it can be just as simple as saying, you know, God, I, I know I need a Savior because I can't do this on my own. I know I need a Savior. Then just specifically ask God to forgive you. You can put some wrappings around it if you want. God, I know I'm not good enough. I haven't done anything to earn it or whatever, but God, I ask you to forgive me because of who Jesus is and what he's done. And then tell God and mean it because I don't think you're doing any of these things unless the Holy Spirit's working in your life and is just saying, this is right. This is right. It's making me nervous, but this is right. Just, just say... Just place your faith in Jesus and say, I'm going to follow you and I'm going to learn what it means to be a person of faith. Place your trust in Jesus today. God, I pray today that you would use our prayer and you would use your word to drive out the doubt in our minds and hearts. One of the greatest ways that we forfeit the privilege that we can have in you is by doubting that you love us, that you want to have a relationship with us, and that we can have a relationship with you through faith in Jesus Christ. God, drive out the doubt with the reality of your word. And God, as we come to your table in just a moment, I pray you'd use the powerful symbols of the cup and the bread to communicate that truth to us afresh. The cup representing the blood of Jesus, the sacrifice that he made for us, the the bread representing the body of Christ, meaning that he was actually here. You were here, and you did this so that we could be forgiven. God, help us to remember so we do not doubt. So we pray in Jesus' name, amen.